You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. So it starts off in the book of Genesis, and I'm going to recap a few thousand years of history very quickly. It starts off in Genesis with Adam and Eve who rebel and open treason against God. And maybe you look at that and you go, really? All they ate was a piece of fruit. I mean, come on, you, you stole a cookie and your mom let you get away with it. So why is this whole world screwed up over one action? But what we understand was that this wasn't just them rebelling against action, but this was them distrusting the nature and character of God. Satan comes to them and says, did God really say, don't eat? Did, did God really say, begin to questioning his goodness as if this good, perfect God is holding something back and in doing so, they begin to invite in their own desires to determine what this world's supposed to look like. From that we see, though, that in the moment that they rebel against God, God in his grace says, I'm making a promise that this world's going to be made right again. You know, J.R. Tolkien, um, Lord of the Rings, and you you, you read his books. Um, Kenny's fascinated with him. He's still trying to get that sword. I just had to say that. Uh, But some some of us, you're fascinated with J.R. Tolkien. What's interesting about it is he's got an essay called On Fairy Tales. And in this essay, he writes this idea that when you watch Lord of the Rings or any um, any of those movies, there's something in us that's so, it's innately in us. We don't even know where it comes from. But in it, it's like we participate with them, although it's a movie. I don't know if you've caught yourself in a situation like that, that when things are going wrong, even though you know the end of the story, you feel suspense. I mean, you can watch that movie like Kenny every week, every day, every night, and you still feel suspense. Like, you would think, because isn't there certain movies, you've seen it once, you've seen it a million times, I don't need to ever see it again. But there's certain things, there's certain, really it's the power of the story. And we actually see this in every society, there's a power of story because there's something in us as humans that's longing for things to be made right. We participate with the character's weakness and struggle in their hope for restoration. And what J.R. Tolkien says is that that's actually placed there by God. That's not just some, um, you know, fanciful thing that certain people have. Everybody has this hope of participating with something being made new. So God makes a promise with Adam and Eve that this world is going to be made right. And then we see this promise, this embryonic promise that starts as a little tiny seed begin to bear fruit and get bigger and bigger and bigger until ultimately we see that finally it's realized. How is God going to make this world right? See, everyone has a worldview. I say this multiple times, but it's important that we understand everybody has a worldview. What the world should be why it's broken, and what's going to get it back on track. Everybody answers those questions. Now, you can pull them out in variable, variable different ways and rearrange them, but everybody, in essence, says the world is a little off kilter. It needs to be balanced. So it needs to be balanced somehow. So what we understand as Christians is that God, through his son Jesus Christ, is the um, initiator of that plan. Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, Paul would say that in Christ, God is reconciling all things on heaven and earth together in him. He is the initiator of that plan. Everybody has a truth claim, regardless of if you're a Christian or not a Christian. It's actually interesting. I get in kind of strange conversations, not even just about Christianity, but just about all kinds of things. But when you start talking about truth, this idea of truth, a lot of people say, well, I believe there's no truth. Okay, there, there is no truth. Well, that's a truth claim. You're appealing to truth to attack. There's no truth claim. 
Every, everyone lands somewhere on a truth. So the real question is, where do we land? What is our guiding factor? We have the nature of God who kind of shows us who he is through the scripture, or we can be led by a handful of different things. And I want to suggest that they can betray us. Number one, we can be led by passion, things that are passion. When I was a little kid, um, I loved uh, little Matchbox and Hot Wheels. I mean, like, I'd go with my mom to Walmart, and that was like, that was the highlight of my life, was just getting that Hot Wheels. Now, oddly enough, from the time I was a child, this is interesting, my dad just reminded me of this. He said, Joel would go home and open his cars. My dad would say, Jared, you never used to open them. And I was like, you're right. My dad's like, you've got about 120 of them in a box. Because you know why? As a little kid, I was like seven or eight years old, I remember we had this fair in my hometown that they would sell these cars and you'd buy them for a dollar and some people would sell them for 10 or 12 dollars. I realized that's a great return. So I still have about 120 cars. So I actually didn't like to play with cars. I like to make money off the cars. It was kind of funny. So my dad goes, you know, you have this thing in you, this delayed gratification from the time you were born. Joel's like, I figured I could play with his cars. I could save mine, sell mine later. This is great. The older I got, though, I realized that I wasn't necessarily engaged with playing with toy cars. How many of us realize a little bit older, you know, when you're 8, 9, 10, 11, you're playing with cars. When you're 13, you're pretending you're not. You're playing with your little brother, right? And then you get a little older. And then, okay, you come home one day, and your wife, you come home, your wife gets home a little later than you, and you're on the ground playing with cars. Come on. How many people go? She goes, I'm going to act like I didn't see that. Because passions change. Passions evolve. Uh, I got a little bit older. I loved basketball. I, uh, I didn't eat a basketball, but I eat, breathe, and sleep. You know what I mean? Everything in my life was about basketball. That's all I wanted was just to play basketball. I knew all the stats. I knew all the games. I played all the time. I practiced. I got a little bit older. I started playing music. Music was my passion everything. Now, I'm not schizophrenic. It's just the nature of life that passions seem to change. You, you kind of look back at your life and say, man, I was fully involved in that. I remember doing a test uh, in preparation for college, and they asked, when do you need to know your major by? When do you need to know what you're going to major in? And the answer was like, uh, or, or when, what do you want to be like, you know, when you go to college? And the answer was like, either multiple choice, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. I put senior because I figured if you can't figure it out by senior, you're, you're kind of in trouble. Well, the answer was like sophomore or junior. And I'm like, what on earth? Passion's change. I mean, statistics show us even once you get into college, odds have it, you're going to probably switch your major. I mean, this is not something passions change, passions evolve. So how can we really truly anchor our life on truth, something that we know is going to be there if it's a passion? Number two, I'd say convenience. Convenience is something that we can actually kind of navigate our lives around, except we start to feel that convenience begins to brush up against this moral thing inside of us that we don't really know why it's there. See, uh, the other day, Aaron and I were playing bocce ball, which um, I won, by the way. Uh, she beat me the other day. We were out. And um, I love bocce ball. And we're playing. And as we're walking away, we hear a fight break out between a husband and a wife. And the wife just lays into this guy and goes, don't you let, me, let him make money off you? And just starts, poof laying into them on this whole thing of like, you've got to get the upper hand. And I'm looking at Aaron, and I'm kind of like playing bocce a little bit, right? And, 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 and listening into this thing, and there's this idea of convenience when there's this internal skill. How can I get a little bit more? How can I make sure that I get more? And if it inconveniences me, I've got to make more. So if we're led by convenience, sooner or later you come into these awkward places. And finally, I'll say this, you can be led by emotions. 
There's other things, of course, that could be guiding factors, but led by emotions. And I want to challenge you that your life needs to be led by more than uh, just passion, more than convenience, and more than emotions. Because there's this thing called the seven-year itch, uh, which is not a skin rash. But if you ever get a skin rash that lasts for seven years, I'd also suggest you get that checked out as well. A seven-year itch, though, people talk about this when you get married and after seven years things kind of get old and you start to feel this pull. Uh, just because it's real doesn't mean it's right. Just because just it's real doesn't mean it's right. Emotions can be wildly deceptive. Uh, originally, um, th- there's a phrase called flying by the seat of your pants. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard of that phrase, flying by the seat of your pants. Originally, before planes had a gyroscope to be able to tell which way is up and down, pilots would fly just by the sight of the horizon. Except how many of us know you can be on a plane, maybe you're flying out west and you look over and you're in the middle of a conversation and you notice your drink, the water is turned one way. Because the power of gravity and G-force can actually tell you that nothing's happening, even though you're completely turned. See, when we're led by passion or convenience or emotion, we have no real centered balance of what's happening. I want to suggest this to you this morning as we move towards our talk on who Christ is and and, and the necessary uh, purpose of baptism, is that truth is transcendent, And it's found in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus makes a claim. John 14, 6, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one. You can't mince that. You can't dice that anyway. He just says, I'm truth. I'm life. No one comes but by me. Uh, something sets us apart as humans from animals. Actually, there's a handful of things that set us apart. Um, although s- some people are so hairy, I've questioned. Sorry. I'm a loose cannon, I am. Truth's transcendent. Uh, we were on a safari a few years back, and um, it's just the circle of life. We could sing it if we need to. Um, the circle of life, though, and we came across a lion. You can't get out of your car, but we looked at this lion and the lion that, you know, they actually really rarely get up from sleep. They almost sleep all day, sleep and eat. It's quite the job. And uh, it was interesting, though, watching this lion, he was not apologetic whatsoever for killing uh, the blazebach. There was no apology. He didn't, he didn't look sad. There was nothing in him that went... And I'm, you know, I should probably apologize for eating you, but I'm hungry. There was, there was nothing in him that apologized. But yet there's something innately in us that when we do something that, not even necessarily that when no one's watching, that's the funny part. There's this sense of truth that kind of hovers over our minds, even when no one's watching, when, when you're not even near anybody, that when something, you do something wrong, even if, even if you want it, even if you're hungry, there's something in it that's innately, it kind of presses against our mind. We go, what? See, animals never apologize. They never say, I'm sorry for eating you. I'm really hungry. I wish it wasn't you, but I've got to do this. That's just not the way this thing works. They eat and they go, thank you. Actually, probably don't even say thank you. They just move on to the next one. However, in no society on the face of this earth is treason praised or welcomed. No society. There's no society that honors lying. I'm not even talking about Christian societies. I'm not talking about people that are, have some shape of uh, uh, Christian faith as we do. I'm talking about any society has somewhat of a moral code that, uh, that hovers over, over their heads. I would suggest this to you, that that was placed there by something beyond you. 
something beyond you. You can't escape it. You can quiet it. But sooner or later, it, it'll begin to speak a little louder. This morning, if you can turn with me to page 405 in the Bible in the seat back in front of you, or if you have one, uh, Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13, it will be also be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Uh, please take that uh, with you. It's, a, it's an easy version to read. I want to sh- show just really three things this morning through Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, about the nature of God, his covenant ways, if we will, his interaction with us, our interaction with him, and then see how that actually really displays on the purpose of baptism, uh, how a Christian views baptism. What is the godly way to view baptism? Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11, 13. Let's all read it in Spanish or English. All right. Has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? Watch this. Has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. All right. Um, When you get angry, you start using descriptive words. So hear this little um, sliver of a passage which will explain. Jeremiah is this uh, prophet of God. He is a man who's called specifically to the people of God who are in rebellion. They have left God, as we'll see in one moment. And Jeremiah is feeling this thing shaking in his bones. And he's going, how do I describe what's happening? God's going, what do I, who do I turn to to, to, to to get an amen, to get a witness? You know, like, I joke about this. You see people, and if you do this, that's fine. I'm not attacking you. I'm just the guy laughing at you when I drive by. I apologize. All right. you, you, you have your windows down, and your music is blasting so loud, and you're by yourself. All right, I'm not against loud music. I just think it's silly because you're on your own. But the reason I think it's silly is that no one goes to the woods, and if you do this to prove me wrong, uh, then we've got another talk for you later. But you, you go to the, no one goes to the woods to blast music on their own in the woods. What are you doing? I'm going to go to the woods and play my music as loud as possible by myself. No. You, that, that no one goes to the woods to blast music. You go to the woods to get quiet so they can actually hear themselves think. When you're by yourself, you see that we're actually in us. There's something that when we got a cool song on, even though you're driving 60 miles an hour and the Doppler effect doesn't even let you understand what's coming out, right? You're saying, Lord, I lift your name on high. And they're, they're thinking, you're like, Josie's on a vacation. I mean, it's just passing. You don't even know what's happening, right? Because the Doppler effect, you know, okay, you don't know what that is. Just go back to your, you know, the manual, sixth grade science book. But... There's something in us that's wanting, wanting people outside of our car to be part of us, to be part of that moment, you know. There's, there's no fun dance party on your own. Uh, why do people love weddings? Because there's people there. It's a party. There's, you don't throw a party for yourself. You might crush down a bowl of ice cream. That's another story, though, right? You're, you're, you're looking for something beyond you. We're, we're longing. And Jeremiah in this text is saying this. How do I get my point across? I'm looking for somebody to say, yes, I agree with you. And he can't find nobody. So what does he do? He goes, be appalled, oh heavens. At what? Two things. Be appalled, oh heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. Why? Verse 13. Whoops. For my people have committed 
two evils. Say two evils. All right. Two, two evils. They've forsaken me, fountain of living waters. Number two, they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Two things. They've rejected God, they've forsaken Him, and they hewed out broken cisterns. At City Lights, we contrast constantly three paths in interacting with God. I'd like to do that again today. First path is the path of irreligion. It's kind of self-explanatory, but it's this. We see this in the text. They forsake me. They forsake me. But this is interesting. I hear people talk about this, uh, and this is a Christian term. I apologize if you don't have a background in faith um, to know this. I'm just It's not really that important. I pray actually never have to know this. But people use a phrase called the backslidden, that you backslide from God. Let me just destroy that real quick. There's no such thing as backsliding. There's turning from and turning to. There's no such thing as backsliding as if you're sliding backwards and like, I can't help myself. It hurts. Gravity's no, that's that's just not the way it works. It says this You be appalled, O heavens, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me and hewed out. They forsake and they go to something. They change. Starts off in verse 11 and says, Has a nation changed its gods? Um, you, if you go, uh, this is going to be crass, I warn you. I warned you, though, that's all I can do. Uh, if you are walking down Main Ave here uh, naked, streaking, <laughs> I'm also not endorsing this. If, if you're doing that and the officer comes up to you and goes, Sir, you are naked, uh, that's indecent exposure, uh, that's public uh, the, you know, lewdness, I have to find you. You can't look at him and go, uh, My clothes fell off me, I'm sorry. Like, have my bad. My clothes jumped off me onto the sidewalk. There they are. I've tried to get them on. They're a little rebellious today. You know, it's, uh, it's been a rough one. I've got to get back to the Velcro loops and stuff. You know, it's just there's too many holes. No, no, no. He, he, has a nation changed its gods? Has a nation changed? Not like the nation gets to sit back and go like, oh, God, we're so sorry. Like, we were serving you. And it just, no, 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 no. You know, you change your clothes. You, ch- you consciously say, I'm doing this or I'm not doing this. And Jeremiah is appealing to this idea that people are willingly changing. And how are they doing this? First, the first evil is through irreligion. They just, they change their gods. They run away from the true God and just say, you know, I don't need God. Some of us here this morning, uh, you, you may actually have that background. Uh, maybe you're currently internally living like that. L- let, me, let me talk to you for a minute and, and not just blur this with the rest of everything else I've said today. Maybe internally you've just absolutely just said, you know what, I, I don't need this thing. I'm, I'm, and you know what, the truth is you probably have really good grounding for that. Um, it's, you know, it's interesting. I told Aaron one day, as, as being a pastor, one of the things that I hate most is the feeling of almost being a used car salesman. And if you're a used car salesman today, um, I, that's not an attack. I just don't envy you. I feel like it's my job to sell you something you don't have because I think you need it. Listen, I'm not selling anything today. There's, there's no sell here, and I feel sometimes I've got to try to sell this to you. That's not my job. Uh, whether you buy it or not, this is truth. This isn't um, 
uh, an appendage attached to yourself to make your life better. This is truth. So it says, maybe some of us are sitting here and internally we're just saying, you know, I don't want this. And you've had a terrible experience with religion. Somebody's been incredibly controlling uh, or whatever, manipulative or have done things in the name of Jesus that just have no grounding in scripture. Um, I, I can't atone for that in these few moments. All I can do is say they were wrong and I can appeal to the grace of Christ. That's, that's all I can do. Some of us today, maybe you've forsaken God. You lived your life years in this idea of I've forsaken God. You know what's amazing, though, is that Jeremiah doesn't just stop at that thing. He goes on to say this, that this, the second thing is just as worse. And this is really interesting because I, I, I think we miss the point on this all the time. That's either an alarm or an angry person. Second path is religion. Two evils. They've forsaken me, and then secondly this. They've hewed out cisterns for themselves. Things that should carry water, hold water that can't. That's the path of religion. See, irreligion says, I don't need God. Religion says, in my own effort, I can please God. I can do it. I can, I can take God's living water. I can take his spirit. I can contain who he is and my ability to please him. We can, we can vibe with it if we can, or we'll just keep going. I see everyone's like, what is that? It's just an alarm. It's not ours. This is where we miss it. You know, the path of irreligion says, I don't need God, but religion is just as evil according to the scripture. Why? Because it says, in my own human power, I can contain who God is. I can control him. I can put him in this thing and say, I can please God or I can go to him when I want. That's the danger of religion. The danger of religion takes who God is, his nature on our own terms. If I can put him in this box, if I can control him, contain him, then I can get him when I want him, and I can leave him when I don't need him. That's religion. All religions say that I can access God when I want, when I don't need to, I'll just back away. But third, we see the gospel implied to us. What is it? It's not running from God. It's not trying to contain God. It's this, that God is bigger and beyond us, and that we are dependent on him. You know, without getting uh, too uh, depressive here for a moment, our world, the frailty of who we are should show us really quickly that we're small. Uh, you get in an airplane, and the, the, the biggest mountain looks incredibly tiny. Uh, you get a sickness, uh, you, you know, you're huge as macho man, and you get one uh, ulcer in your stomach, and you're bent over in the fetal position, crying like a greyhound all right, that's hungry for food. You, you are sore. It doesn't matter how big you are. Life shows you very quickly, sooner or later, and you either realize that and go, there's a God that I can trust on and be dependent on, or I just have to try to man up and try to conquer this thing until you're the... It doesn't matter. Life shows us. The gospel is implied to us through this text. Why? How? Through the heavens. Verse 12, Jeremiah says this, Be appalled, O heavens, the created order. There's something beyond us that we are dependent of. Hold your breath for like two minutes you pass out. But yet people try to live their lives independent of anything, saying, I can do it. No, you are dependent on something, whether you realize it or not. The gospel's this. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave himself for us, I'm closing in just a few moments. I have 
two other things that I feel like I want to hammer on. One's baptism, and one's the expression of how we miss it. Religion is, this is how I love God. I contain him. I can go to him when I want him. If I pray enough, if I give enough, if I read enough. You know what's wild? I was talking with someone recently, and we were talking about who God is, the nature of who he is. And, and I said, you know, like, I didn't even, she brought it up. I didn't even go there. She said, you know, I just feel like when I stand before God, I'm a good person. I'm going to be able to weigh my scales out. I was like, okay, that's great. And I started talking about how particularly as Americans, we're so blind I put up a statistic. Seven out of ten Americans think they're above average grillers. I think that's hilarious. And if there's seven out of ten that are above average, then at least a few of them are lying. We find somebody that's worse than us. We think back to that barbecue that the guy lit his house on fire, and I'm like, I'm not that bad. Then we think to the greatest steak we've ever had. I'm like, yeah, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm definitely better. I'm above average. This is love. This is the gospel. God loves us and gave himself for us. Not that we love God, God loved himself and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice. The word atoning there means to cover, to absorb, to take on on himself. See, the deceptive part about religion, and I'll never understand this, the deceptive part about religion, and I'm using that in in, in in Christian understanding, not religions, religion in context of Christianity. The deceptive part about it is you think you get something, but you get nothing. That, I don't understand that. I don't understand the, the religious mind that thinks I can somehow, coming to church does me good if I never really allow Christ to transform my life. I don't get that. You know, what it is, though, is this false sense of security. It's this false sense of affirmation that says, you know what, I, I went as if God somehow weighs our lives on a scale and goes, man, you've been to church a lot recently. That's, that's, that's... It's deceptive, though, because we feel that somehow I can get it if I need it. Religion is man's attempt to get to God. The gospel is God's rescue plan coming to man. Very different. Religion says I can keep God at an arm's length, and when I need him, I'll come to him. But listen, the gospel's this. He gave everything, and he will transform all of who you are. If you've come to Christ and you've stayed the same, listen, if you've come to Christ and stayed the same, I'm not talking about works as if you've got to change yourself. If you've come to Christ and you stay the same, I would truly, truly search your heart and see, is God changing me? Have I come to Christ or have I simply come into this religious thing called Christianity where I go and I get my cup of living water for the week and I walk away? Jesus says this, that when you come to me, I'll give you rivers of living water from the inside. I'm not going to try to change you from the outside, from the inside. It's the great crime. Closing with a story and one last text about baptism. When I was little, we'd go to the uh, public swimming pool um, we saw some kids down at Weston Field. They were trying to do it. Does anybody take a look at that water by any chance? It's not blue or clear. The older you get, you realize, uh, particularly our dunk tank, Jimmy spent quite a bit of time in Jesse there. When they poured that water out of there, I encouraged everybody to sign a waiver and make sure you were current on your shots. Okay, that was, that was, I'd tell you another joke, but you'd probably leave the church. So I'm kidding, kind of. If you really want to know, I'll tell you later. When I got in that water, it was, it was green. 
Um, the only thing I've drank that was that was a veggie shake. All right, I have no clue, and I guarantee you they're not they're not blending veggies in the in Scranton's water system. So, whatever was made up in that, I don't know. Uh, when I was growing up, though, I went to the pool, and, I, and this is just something that's just inevitably etched um, forever in my mind. I remember walking out on the diving board; it was my first time. And I didn't really know what to expect, the suspense of a diving board. But I remember walking out and just seeing everybody else. All I knew was you were supposed to get out to the edge, jump as really as fast as you could, as far as you can, swim to ladders so somebody didn't knock you out, right, when they jumped in behind you. So I went to the edge, and uh, thankfully I didn't really have a problem with it. I just got out there and jumped. But I remember watching people who would walk to the edge of the diving board and just stall, just freeze. And this kind of manifests itself um, a little bit older when you go to theme parks, particularly roller coasters, with long, you wait for two hours in a line, and at the last second, people say, I can't do it. Just tell me if you can't do it before we wait in line two hours, right? You, you get to the end, and then they go, it's just too much, I gotta go. And then you have to walk back, and you know the guys that design roller coasters make the aisles as thin as possible, right? So that on the way back, you've got to squeeze through. Everyone goes, oh, where are you going? You're, I gotta go to the bathroom. It's just been a long wait. And they go, oh, I'm really just crying. And you know, religion, religion apart from Christ, as we contrast here often, there's irreligion, I don't need God. Gospel, God comes to me. And religion, I can come to God when I want. These three very distinct paths. Religion is just simply strolling to the edge of the diving board. I come to the edge of the diving board, and I go, I'm going to turn around. It's the action, it's the motion, it's the movement, without ever really experiencing what it's saying. There's no benefit of that. No benefit. I'm going to close with this text. Colossians chapter 2, 11 through 14. Paul the Apostle the New Testament, he speaks concerning baptism. And uh, I'm going to talk about circumcision for just one moment. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Let me explain that. When God came to Abram, Genesis chapter 11, he made a promise. He said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Through you, I'm going to bless this whole world. And, and as a sign that you're in covenant with me, I want you to begin to circumcise your children on the eighth day, etc. And this was a covenant people of God, so that this was an early practice of the Jewish people, that they were in covenant with God. I'm not really sure how they knew if you were circumcised or not. That's a personal struggle I have. But they would, <laughs> just being honest, but they, 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 you were circumcised people, they were in covenant, because the word to covenant means to cut. Uh, it means to cut. So they were, in circ- they were in covenant with God, they were circumcised, they were in covenant with him, and they said, I'm, we're the covenant people of God, we're marked differently, we look different on the outside of somebody else. And we also see this, if you drive into the hill section, those that still uh, practice Orthodox Judaism, uh, you'll see that they also have not only just circumcision as a sign, but on the outside they have tassels, they go around their coat, head covering, etc., depending on which branch of Judaism they are. And there's an outward sign that they are in covenant with their God. They're saying, I'm in covenant with God through this outward expression. But what happens, and it's really the great travesty that happens throughout human history and happens today in relationships just the same, is that in word, we're one thing, and in deed, we're something totally else. So Paul says this, you were circumcised not just on the outside, not just on the flesh, not just on the outside, 
But you were circumcised in the heart. Then he goes on, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. How? By canceling the record of the debt stood against us with its legal demands. Make one note here. Um, According to the Christian faith, we'll stand before God, and it's one of two questions. Uh, Christ's blood or your blood? It's really one of two paths. It's not, there's no uh, your blood. Let me just encourage you without wasting any more of your time. Uh, It's not going to work. You're not going to get to find somebody that's worse off than you and go, you know, somewhere in the, how many billion of people on the earth? I'm in the upper echelon, so God's like, yeah, let's skim off the top as if he's, no, that's, that's weird. God gives everybody a fair shot through Christ. He doesn't look at you and go, ah, well, you're fortunate enough to be raised in a good moral family that uh, likes button-up shirts, so, you know, you're probably going to get in. No. He gives everybody the same shot. How? Through Christ. He cancels the record of debt. There's no debt. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is baptism. This is the necessity of it. Great travesty is that we could actually do things on the surface with our heart totally disengaged. Totally disengaged. So you could be in a relationship with somebody for so long and on the surface, everything's good. And then, whoo! You could be working a job in customer service. Like I was at the airport in Charlotte a few weeks, a few months ago. And the lady goes, it's going to be about, it's about a 10-minute delay. And I'm like, oh, good, 10-minute delay. And I overhear her turning to her friend and go, 10 minutes? It's going to be an hour and a half. Yeah, I know. I just tell people that. I'm like, Lord, have mercy. So that's not what you want to hear. I would just tell people. The great travesty, though. The, really, the chief thing of everything is that on the surface we could be one thing, and underneath we could be something totally different. We're a duck. We're just so graceful on the surface, and underneath, just ripping through that water. We can be on the surface engaged, and underneath be to- to- totally different. That's the great travesty. And listen, you gain nothing. God sees through who you are. And I'll just say this, there's a better way anyways. So what is baptism? As we close and as we preface to our barbecue next week, which I'd greatly encourage you to come. If you don't need to be baptized, I encourage you to come for the food. Um, Jesus had 5,000 people show up for a picnic. If we can get 50, I'm happy, all right? What's, what's the great travesty, though? That we could actually say, you yeah, know, I need to get baptized. Why? Because Jesus said so. But yet our hearts are totally disengaged. Baptism is a sign of covenant. Here in Colossians, Paul connects circumcision with the old covenant, circumcision with the old covenant, baptism with the new covenant. So can you be a Christian and and, and not be baptized? Um, That's a wrong question. It's not, there's... Is there an answer? Sure, you could be a Christian and not be baptized. Why would you not want to be baptized? It's not, can you? When you're a little, when you're a little kid and your mom says, uh, don't go to McDonald's when, after, you know, when you're later. Don't go to McDonald's so you go to Burger King. You come home and your mom's like, well, where were you? I was at Burger King. You, I told you not to go out. No, you told me not to go to McDonald's. <laughs> not Burger King. 
next week. I didn't go to Burger King. I went to Taco Bell. And then your mom has to write up a legal contract for you. See, that's silly. That's a religion that even tries to negotiate with that. That says, do I have... That's not it because the gospel calls us to full surrender. Complete surrender. Baptism isn't just something I do on the outside so people go, oh, he's in. Baptism is the marker that I am a part of the covenant community of God. I'm closing right now with this. And I'm not going to have the band come up just because it's been a long day. And I know I've um, kind of exhausted you possibly through this. Everyone's like, maybe, maybe not. All right, follow me here. God desires a people. God's always had a people, covenant people of God, people that model his nature and character on the earth. What's baptism? Baptism isn't just something you do when you're 11 years old and you have no clue what it is. Baptism is the outward sign of you professing to those in similar faith and to the world around you who's watching that I am God's set-apart people to bring his love, hope, grace, and redemption to the world. I am outwardly professing something that's already happened on the inside. It's not that I do something on the outside of hoping it gets on the inside. Uh, I can't dunk you long enough. I'll try to hold you under if you want, though. But that doesn't work. Baptism is the outward expression saying, I'm in. Colossians says, you've been buried in baptism and you've been raised with Christ. Baptism is the marker saying, I am 100% in. This isn't something you get brownie points for or somebody gives you like extra credit as if there's a curve when you stand before the Lord and he goes, you had a failing score, but you got baptized, so you're in. Like, you know, you took communion a couple extra time, you, you, and you got baptized, so you were really at an F, but we squeezed you in on a D-. Listen, that's garbage. That doesn't work. That's not Bible. That's a figment of your imagination. Baptism is the outward expression of saying, Jesus, take everything. Use me on mission who you are. I am going underwater saying that I've died with you. I'm coming out of water saying now I live for you. If you've not been baptized, I want to encourage you, please sign up for our baptism if, if you're saying, Lord, I'm ready. I, I, I want to live for you. I'm not talking about carrying tracks and rolling them up in the toilet paper so when somebody pulls it out of Texas Roadhouse, they're all on the ground. That's not living for Jesus. That's making a mess, littering, and giant carbon footprint, all right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about living for Jesus is simply saying this. I want to be your expression on the earth. Everything I have. Everything I have. This morning, I would encourage you, think through those three paths. Everyone relates to God. Irreligion, religion, or the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you. As we think towards baptism, as we think towards the idea that you have a people, a covenant people, a people that are bringing about your purposes in the earth, that you're moving through, a chosen people. Lord, I thank you. Through this past week at City Lights, we were able to just, in our own community, I can't wait for more opportunities like that to just be able to show this community that we love them and that you're a good God and you're not angry. Thank you for that, Lord. And I pray today through the teaching of your scripture, God, that we would be convinced, we'd be challenged, that you would cut deep into our hearts and our souls so that we would choose to live for you. Lord, for those that are um, currently taking the path of irreligion, I pray that you would continue to test their hearts, continue to try their hearts, and uh, by your goodness, show them who you are. I pray for those that are here today that um, are just here out of religious obligations, maybe here for uh, 
their children or their spouse or even for their own conscience, I pray that you show them that you've paid the full price, the perfect price, and that religion really doesn't get us anything. You are our everything. Father, I pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. Thank you.